Hello everyone! Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I am your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about the victims of Khalil Wheeler Weaver. Khalil did not fit the profile of your typical serial killer, but the number of women he murdered earned him that status. Outward appearances can be deceiving. Khalil was perceived as a good kid who came from a good family. He had a few family members in law enforcement and was generally regarded as being a nerdy, quiet kid who kept to himself. No one could have expected the sadistic cruelty he was capable of delivering to vulnerable women willing to perform sexual acts to earn money they needed for survival. But before we get started with today's story, let's hear today's terrifying tidbit. According to the gender policy report from the University of Minnesota, sex workers around the world have a 45-75% to chance of experiencing workplace violence. In the U.S. specifically, sex workers are often attacked by law enforcement. Quote, One New York City-based study of streetwalkers found that 80% had experienced violence and 30% reported violence or threats of violence from law enforcement. A big issue is that being a sex worker is criminalized in most places. Police don't want to help criminals even if they're being victimized because they view it as being unethical. In addition, there's a lack of effective social services that would prevent and reduce actual sex trafficking rings. In efforts to crack down on sex trafficking, often police are harming these marginalized groups with disruptive and disorienting raids and strict rules about adult internet content. Not all sex workers are victims of the trade, but unfortunately for our story today, they were victims of a cold-blooded serial killer. Our story takes place in a couple of towns in Essex County within a 15-mile radius, but the major one was Newark. Newark is the largest municipality by population in New Jersey with over 300,000 residents. It is home to many colleges, such as the New Jersey Institute for Technology and Rutgers Newark, and is incredibly ethnically and economically diverse. The Prudential Center is a major venue for sports, music, and even graduations. If my graduation had been canceled because of COVID, that's where it would have been. Anyway, with beautiful parks like Branchbrook and Riverfront Park, Newark has a lot to offer its residents and visitors. Overall, Newark is a beautiful, lively city, but it is not without its crime. With its average murder rate tripling the national average and assault following close behind, it's important to remain aware and vigilant in this bustling city. Khalil Wheeler Weaver, however, was unfortunately a repetitive contributor to these statistics. Robin West was born on September 5, 1996 in Philadelphia. Her father, Reverend Leroy West, was always hanging out with his daughter and absolutely adored her. Robin was known to be the life of the party type of person with a bubbly, free-spirited disposition. She loved music, and when she put her mind to something, she was unshakably motivated and determined to achieve it. The year is 2016. Unfortunately, Robin was adventurous in a way that led her down an unpredictable path. She decided that she wanted to be a sex worker in Philly with her friend Bernicia. They would go online to meet clients and then meet them in hotels around the city. As I stated earlier, being a sex worker puts people at increased risk for violence, and police intervention is much less swift if someone committing a crime has a crime committed against them. With Robin's 20th birthday around the corner, she and Bernicia wanted to celebrate, so they went to... Union Township. No disrespect to my union people, but is that the spot? Am I just unaware of what Union has to offer? <laughs> anyway, they jump on the turnpike and end up in North Jersey. But soon they run out of money, but this doesn't stop the girls. They have a plan. It was around 11pm, and the two were on Nye Avenue, and Robin was working the corner. One of the first cars to arrive was the Silver BMW. Bernicia described the driver as being young, good-looking, and charming. 
Usually the two girls would go with each other when they met up with clients for safety purposes, but this time Robin went alone. Bernicia told the driver to take care of her sister and she told Robin that she loved her. As a precaution, Bernicia took a picture of, of the license plate before they pulled off and that was the last time she ever saw Robin. At 2 a.m., several miles from Nye Avenue in Newark, an abandoned house is ablaze on the corner of Lakeside and Wachung Avenue. This is a five alarm fire, so firefighters from five different cities came out to put out the flames. They discovered a body that was completely unidentifiable. It was burned that badly. What they originally believed to just be a case of arson turned into a homicide investigation. By 6 a.m., Bernicia still hadn't heard from Robin and neither had her family. Because Robin's birthday was coming up, her family was texting her trying to arrange a celebration, but she wasn't responding. Bernicia, knowing that she was probably one of the last people Robin saw that night, did the reasonable thing and reported her missing to the Newark Police Department. She gives a description of the man Robin left with and showed them a picture she had taken of his license plate. The police wave her off because they don't suspect a murder and technically she's only missing. They wanted to give Robin some time to show up before they actually, you know, opened an investigation. Two weeks later, on September 13th, 2016, the body in the house was identified as Robin West. Her family's worst fears had been realized. She was strangled, dumped in the house, and then her body was lit on fire, which is what caused the house fire. Although police had the license plate number and physical description of the last person she was said to be with, nothing was done with this information. Now we meet 33-year-old Joanne Brown, also known as London. Joanne had a troubled upbringing with her foster family because she was neglected, abused, and molested by the people that were supposed to be looking out for her. According to her friends Farnesha and Ashley, Joanne was humble and kind and all she wanted was a loving family. She wanted to be a mother and achieve her goal of becoming a model. In the meantime, however, Joanne worked as a sex worker. On Saturday, October 22nd, 2016, Joanne was hanging around outside of a Popeyes in South Newark with her friends. She was casually in search of some new clients. Around 1 p.m., a man in a silver BMW pulled up to the Popeyes and called her over to his car. Joanne thinks he's handsome, so she enters his vehicle. Right before they're about to pull off, one of Joanne's friends runs over and asks to borrow her phone to make an important phone call. Joanne gives her friend her phone, and then the man drives them away. After a couple of minutes, Joanne realizes the danger of riding alone with a client with no cell phone. She borrows the guy's phone to call her friend Amina and tell that she's safe. Two hours later, Amina gets another phone call from the same phone number. She picks up, but no one is responding on the other end, and then the call just abruptly ends. She calls back several times, but never gets an answer. The next day on October 23rd, Amina goes to the Newark Police Department and reports Joanne missing. She gives them the driver's phone number. Joanne's friend Farnesha also reported Joanne missing, but the first question the police asked her was, was she a streetwalker? An important fact to know about Robin and Joanne is that they were black women who, you know, participated in sex work. I hope this adds some clarity about why the police were exceptionally uninterested in investigating their cases any further. Knowing that the police weren't going to be of any use to them, Ashley and Nisha conduct a small investigation of their own. They scour all the nearby psych wards to see if maybe she had been checked into one, and they called every local jail to see if she happened to get arrested, but she wasn't anywhere. Weeks and weeks are passing with no answers as to where Joanne is or what happened to her. Joanne was last seen only two miles from where Robin went missing. On November 15, 2016, in Elizabeth, 33-year-old Tiffany Taylor was staying at the Ritz Motel. She was dead broke, pregnant with her second child, and homeless. 
She had no support system or anybody who could help her with money, so she was incredibly desperate and she did what she had to do to survive. One of Tiffany's friends told her that one of their friends needed a ride. In exchange for giving him a ride, the friend would give her some much-needed gas money. So Tiffany and the guy are texting back and forth and then he arrived at the motel where she was staying. They both get into Tiffany's car and they drive off. She described him as being a tall, skinny guy wearing a ski mask and gloves. She didn't question the attire because, especially in Newark, New Jersey City, that's not an uncommon sight. Although sometimes unsettling, it's not super weird to see dudes walking around with ski masks all in the winter. Y'all know how cold it gets over here. The guy said he needed to go to the bathroom, so Tiffany pulled over to the side of the road. He also asked her for a cigarette, so she parked the car, handed him a cigarette, and the next thing she knows, he's on top of her in the back seat, raping her. She turned around and tried to swing and scratch him in the face, but he handcuffed her arms behind her back. He then proceeded to put duct tape on her face, and that's when the realization that this was about to be a murder set in. Tiffany's resolve to live was diamond strong at this point. She had her baby to protect, so she fought like hell. She said in her interview, if he was gonna kill me, he was gonna have to die too. Because Tiffany was screaming and crying, she was able to create enough moisture to make the duct tape lift up from her face. Now that her voice could be heard more clearly, she came up with an idea. She reminds the assailant that her phone was left in the motel room, a phone just littered with evidence and information about him. She said that when the police find her phone, they're going to put two and two together. The guy realizes the severity of that eventuality and drives her back to the motel. He rushed to rip her out of the car, pull her pants back up and follow her up the stairs to the room. When she got to the door, Tiffany snatched it open and quickly slammed it behind her. He was screaming and banging on the door, crying that she had lied to him. Because Tiffany was very flexible, she was able to free one of her wrists from the handcuffs. She gave him an incredulous look like, you really think I'm gonna come back out there and let you kill me? After he realized he had been bested, the assailant ran off into the night. After a while, the cops show up at the motel. Tiffany told the officers that she knew the guy and proceeded to give them all of his contact information, including his name, address, email, and his Facebook. As you could probably guess, the phone number that she gave the police was the same phone number that Joanne's friend Amina gave them about a month prior. Unfortunately, they didn't care about any evidence or leads that Tiffany had for them. They just zoomed in on accusing her of being a prostitute and actually threatened to arrest her. Tiffany realized that the cops either didn't believe her or just didn't care. Either way, they fully let this man go because they thought she was just another prostitute getting in a fight with a client. Even when they originally came to the motel, they asked her if she had any injuries when her face clearly had bruises and duct tape marks all over it. They had no interest in trying to help her. The Elizabeth police then tried to investigate the crime after the fact, but because there wasn't a report, they couldn't pursue it much further and the assailant was free to attack again. Now let's meet 19-year-old college student Sarah Butler. Sarah was very hardworking and loved dance. She attended NJCU in Jersey City, but she was from the affluent community of Montclair. Although the Butlers weren't as financially well-off as their neighbors, Sarah was able to get into college and was thriving academically. She was the first member of her family to attend college, but socially and financially, she was struggling. Now it's November 22nd, 2016, exactly one week after Tiffany's assault. It's Thanksgiving break and Sarah went on a dating app called Tagged. I've never heard of Tagged before, but I'm assuming it's like Tinder. Her and a guy match on there and she takes her mom's minivan to go on the date. Her mom wanted her home by 8 p.m. At 8.05, her mom starts getting stressed. Sarah is usually exceptionally punctual, so even a five minute delay was a cause for concern. Her family is texting and texting her, but to no avail. 
The next day on the 23rd, Sarah's mother reported her missing to the Montclair Police Department. But because Sarah is 19, a legal adult, there's not much police can do. Of course, the butlers are, are more concerned because they know Sarah. She's not the type to just run off and not say anything. It just didn't make any sense. Again, receiving no help from the police, Sarah's friends and family launched their own investigations. On November 25th, one of Sarah's sister's friends spotted the mom's minivan somewhere in town. Sarah's sister and some of her other friends show up after the police have already arrived and were searching the van. The girls are able to point out the wig that Sarah was wearing when she left for the date, a significant piece of evidence. The parking lot where the car was left was also searched by a cadaver dog, but they didn't get any hits. Sarah's sister knew all of her passwords, so her and her friends were able to access her tagged account. The last conversation Sarah had on the app was with a user named Lil Yacht Rock. He brazenly asked Sarah, sex for money? You wanna make some money? Although initially shocked by the question, Sarah responds with, how much money? They agree upon $500. She asks, you're not a serial killer, right, LMAO? The poor thing was low on money and she was desperate to keep up with college. As an aside, we joke about serial killers being on dating sites, but they're really out there and y'all need to stay safe. A person immediately inquiring about sex work is already a huge red flag, but always meet in a public place and make sure someone else knows exactly where you are and when you intend to be coming back. They learned that Lil Yacht Rock asked Sarah to pick him up from a large house in nearby Orange. Because this was Sarah's last correspondence on the app, her sisters and friends plot to catfish this Lil Yacht Rock. They figure out his type and create a fake profile to lure him in, then head to the police department to tell them their findings in their ongoing plot. As they sit down with the cops, he responds. The message reads, sex for money, wanna meet? The girls and the police collaborated on a response right then because the guy wanted to meet as soon as possible. On November 26th, the crew set up a meeting at a nearby Panera Bread. He was expecting a young woman. He got two grown men police officers instead. The guy is an innocent looking 19 year old from Orange. The cops ask if they can look through his car and he calmly agrees, but the cops find nothing of interest. They still bring him in for questioning at the Montclair Police Department. The guy confirms that he did meet Sarah on the night in question. However, he claimed that she dropped him off after the date and that's the last he saw of her. Because this guy was a defensive, cagey, or argumentative, the police felt like they didn't have any reason to keep him, so they let him go. At this point, the police are starting to feel disheartened. That was pretty much their only lead, and they didn't even find it. A few days later, at the Eagle Rock Preservation in West Orange, they find Sarah Butler's body. It was partially hidden behind a trailer next to a parking lot. The poor baby had been strangled with her own sweatpants. They knew Sarah fought to the death because a coroner found DNA under her nails. Guess who it was a match to? On December 4th, 2016, the police search Khalil Wheeler Weaver's house and they find he has two cell phones. Interesting. Anyway, he gets arrested for the murder of Sarah Butler. Contractors found Joanne Brown's body in a burned down house. She was strangled with her own jacket and her body was burned with cigarettes and wrapped in duct tape. This was the same house where Sarah met Khalil. This was clearly Khalil's killing spot and dumping ground for Robin and Joanne. Tiffany Taylor received a phone call the following day from her brother letting her know that the police finally caught Khalil. Although she was relieved, she was enraged that if the police had just listened to her or any of the previous victims, Sarah and others would have been saved. Tiffany got in contact with the prosecutor on the case and informed them that she was also one of Khalil's victims, which was the final piece police needed to establish his MO. At every attack, he would wrap his victims' mouths in duct tape, rape them, and then strangle them. The police were finally connecting the dots between the forgotten cases of Joanne Brown and Robin West. Bernicia had given them his license plate. Amina and Tiffany had given them the same phone number. 
they realized that this man had attacked four women in less than four months. The police proceeded to charge Khalil with three counts of murder, one count of attempted murder, rape, arson, and desecration of human remains. The case began three years later in September of 2019. Tiffany testified against Khalil as his only survivor. In her interview, she recalled how she felt like she couldn't breathe, like this weight was pressing down on her chest, but she knew the importance of her words. She knew that finally people would be listening to what she had to say and that her testimony had an incredible weight. Tiffany kept her cool and remarked, he had to go. There's just a mountain of evidence against Khalil, so much so that it took them three months to bring the boxes and boxes all into evidence in the trial. They had Khalil's phone, which pretty much exposed everything. That was how he found his victims, how he learned the methods to kill them, and it revealed that he was at the location of every murder exactly when they happened. Throughout the trial, Khalil remained stone-faced and unaffected by the testimonies and evidence that were presented against him. There was really no defense to be argued. There was no chance that there was an accomplice or that it was just a series of wrong place, wrong time coincidences. On December 19th, 2019, the jury decided in two hours that 25-year-old Khalil Wheeler Weaver was guilty on all 11 counts. He was sentenced to 160 years in prison. Sadly, police are confident that Khalil had another victim, a 15-year-old girl from Newark, so he was charged with her murder in March of 2022. The girl was found strangled in an abandoned house in October 2016, and the evidence was pretty stacked against him. When you take a step back, you kind of have to wonder, who knows how many victims he has? How many under-investigated crimes across the Newark area was he responsible for? Crimes against black women and sex workers are typically not as investigated as crimes against other groups. This case made me so sad and also confused. I can only assume that Khalil was some sort of incel that wanted to get back at women because no one knew him to have a girlfriend his whole life. He wasn't abused at home or bullied to our knowledge, which are common traits that serial killers tend to share. What's sick is that he worked as a security guard when he was killing these women, so he was in a place where he should have been protecting others. It's sad that he was young enough to become anything he wanted to be, but now he's going to be in prison forever. These young women could have become anything they wanted to be, but he took that from them. That is the end of today's story. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. I will see you all next week. Goodbye.